3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, California has some of the nation's toughest gun laws, but are they working? As we anguish over the toll of recent mass shootings, including in Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay that killed 19 people, many have been left wondering, how does this keep happening here? Are California's gun laws ineffective or just too hard to enforce? Have we reached the limits of what one state can do? We tackle those questions with experts and prosecutors and hear yours right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California has more than 100 gun control laws on the books, and we're one of only two states to earn an A from the Giffords Law Center based on the strength of our regulations and our relatively low number of gun deaths compared to other states when you factor in the size of our population. But in the aftermath of recent gun massacres in Monterey Park, Goshen, and Half Moon Bay, many are asking, are California's laws effective? Garen Wintmute directs, the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis Medical Center and joins me now. Welcome, Dr. Wintermute. Thanks for having me, Mina. So, you say California's gun laws are effective, even
4: in the wake of these terrible killings. Why? I, I do say that even this week. Um, we need not to consider the laws a failure because they don't prevent all gun violence, but understand that they are a success to the extent that they do prevent gun violence. And let me quantify that. Our firearm homicide rate is well below the average for the country. Our firearm suicide rate is among the very lowest. In 2020, if the entire country had had California's firearm death rate, we would have saved nearly 16,000 lives in that one year. That
3: is pretty startling, but I guess it's still hard for us to wrap our minds around how even with those kinds of laws and the effectiveness that they could have if they were implemented across the country, that someone was able to obtain a gun legally and kill so many people with it in the case of Half Moon Bay. Could we just drill down into that a little bit? And can you tell us what We are learning so far about how that particular gunman was able to do that.
4: Yes. And this is a story that brings in many of the broader contributors to firearm violence. Um, We, Our our current understanding, which changes daily, here's a man who lived under difficult um, conditions, um, who had ongoing disputes with Uh, People around him who had a prior history of of violence, a restraining order, but years earlier, um, the final stimulus, we're told, is that he was being asked to pay for um, some equipment damage, and a dispute over that um, escalated into violence because he had a firearm with him that, according to his report, he had acquired legally. Much of the success and failure of California's policies um, is reflected in that story. So when you say he had a restraining order, you mean he
3: had a restraining order against owning a firearm? He was a prohibited person?
4: No, it was it was a, I, I'm sorry. It, the restraining order was not against uh, firearm ownership per se, but it did make him a prohibited person. But restraining orders are only prohibiting in California while they're in effect. Once the restraining order expires, the prohibition goes with it. And that is
3: what happened in the case of Half Moon Bay. Could you remind us of the situation in Monterey Park? In that case, the shooter had a banned weapon, but you say our laws make it possible for that to be the case. How how does it do that?
4: Well, yes. Um, The assault-type pistol that he owned had been banned in California in 1989. Uh, Banning the weapons doesn't remove them from the state, of course. Um, He could have acquired it legally before it was banned and retained it illegally. He could have acquired it illegally after it was banned. And our understanding is that that's what happened. Um, He also had a high capacity magazine for that. Uh, firearm, its ability to hold those magazines is one of the reasons it was banned in the first place. Um, And we have a ban on the books for high-capacity magazines, um, but that ban is not enforced because of court decisions. Right. It's been challenged in
3: the courts multiple times. And as you say, there were guns that were legal years, decades ago that people could still be holding on to. I guess then is the conclusion that we should draw is that we need to add more laws, like we need to lengthen uh, how long a restraining order is in place or the conditions under which they can be granted, or we need to do a better job of trying to make sure that certain guns, um, even if they were acquired legally, uh, should no longer be in the possession of people
4: in this state.
3: I- is that the answer?
4: Right. So our, our group takes, and I personally take a, a public health approach to this. Um, and one of the things the public health approach does is change all those ors that you just mentioned to ands. that there isn't one right thing. There isn't even a small number of right things Uh, if our goal is to prevent all of the instances of violence, which has many, uh, there are many paths that lead to violent acts. So we need to strengthen the laws that we have, I would argue. We need to do a more comprehensive job of enforcing the laws that we have. But we also need to recognize, particularly in California, that already has on the books most of the laws that people writing for national audiences say are necessary. We need to understand that there really is a limit to how much gun violence we're going to prevent if we focus all of our policy attention on guns themselves or even guns and the people who own them. We Mm -hmm. need to think also about the broader social conditions that give rise to violence and the role that government and society can play in improving those conditions.
3: We're talking with Garen Wintemute, Director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis. He also practices and teaches emergency medicine at the UC Davis School of Medicine. I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Do you think our state's gun laws are effective? What do you want to know about them or how we enforce them? Curious if you're a gun owner, if you support California's current gun regulations. You mentioned, Garen Wintemute, that we have a lot of things on the books um, that you know, people like you are saying are the right things to have and that the rest of the nation should have. Could you just run through the major categories of laws that we have just to give our listeners some
4: context? Sure. Um, And I'm going to prioritize. I'm going to mention laws that we believe work that many other states in the federal government don't have. Um, First, we require a background check for all purchases of firearms, even between private parties. In most of the country, one private party can buy a gun from another private party, no background check, no waiting period, no records, cash moves in one direction, gun moves in the other, it takes less than a minute. I've watched this happen hundreds of times. Um, We have expanded our criteria for denial of firearm purchase to include people who have been convicted of violent misdemeanor crimes like assault and battery. That prohibition only lasts for 10 years. But in most of the country, it is simply a myth that violent criminals cannot legally buy guns. They can, unless that violent crime is a felony or involves um, intimate partner violence. We have a lengthy waiting period, 10 days, so that background checks can be conducted comprehensively. We have gun violence restraining orders, so-called red flag orders. We were the first state in the country to do it. It was a response to a mass shooting um, that allows, Well, no, I'll say this instead. We're sitting on 58 cases and the number is counting in which GVROs were used uh, in an effort to prevent a mass shooting here in California, just in three years, six, 2016 to 18. And in none of those 58 cases did the threatened mass shooting occur.
3: And we don't often hear about those, as we don't often hear about things that don't happen, <laughs> Dr. It,
4: yeah, it, it's called the paradox of prevention. It's, and, and thank you, Mina, for that. It's the reason that we can sit here today and wonder if our laws work. Because when they, when they don't work, as they didn't in Monterey Park, Goshen, San Mateo, many other places, we hear about the tragedy. When they do work, nothing happens. That's precisely the point. And we don't hear about the nothings that don't happen.
3: I'm struck by what you said earlier about money moves in one direction, guns move in the other, in our neighboring states you're talking about. You said you saw this happen hundreds of times. Are you talking about like in Arizona or Nevada?
4: Yes. uh, Those states specifically, um, I used to do observational research. I would go to gun shows with a hidden camera. Um, I did that all over the country, but yes, in particular in Arizona and Nevada.
3: And so can you just characterize for much, for for us just how much of an outlier California is uh, relative to these other states and how, if there is a very stark contrast in our gun laws, that impacts California?
4: Sure. Um, well, with regard to Arizona and Nevada, um, it's night and day. Um, California is one of about half dozen states with really robust regulatory regimes for firearms. And I should mention, the other states also have rates of death that are as low as ours or lower. Um, Arizona and Nevada, at least at the state level, um, have relative to ours, very lax regulations. Arizona even more so um, than California, such that, it it, I'll give you an uh, example from personal observation, Um, at gun shows in Nevada, Almost a third of the cars in the parking lot are from California. People cross the border to buy, in part, to buy things that they can't buy here because they're illegal, and then they bring them back.
3: I think one of the things that is striking to me is that there are states in other parts of the country on the East Coast, for example, where they're surrounded by states that have comparable laws, especially if they have strict gun laws, like in Massachusetts and so on, and that it really does have a relative effect in terms of the ability to keep guns out. And I think your story is really illustrating that.
4: <laughs> yes. In New England, the states are small. So it it matters that um, neighboring states have similar laws. Here, we get some insulation from the fact that... Um, our laws, our laws are so um, robust. And on the East Coast, firearms move from the Southeast, Georgia, Florida, places like that, into New England, a trafficking pathway that is so well known it has a name. It's called the Iron Pipeline.
3: Hmm. We're talking with Garen Wintermute about the obstacles that California faces as it tries to enforce... It's gun laws and contending with lax rules in neighboring states. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions or comments about California's gun laws and how we enforce them.
5: 866
3: 733 6786 is the number. Email address forum at kqed.org. At KQED Forum is where you can post thoughts on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Nepotism has been around forever, but lately more and more people are calling it out. Are you familiar with Nepo babies? Well, look at why nepotism is getting scrutinized online. Today, we're talking about California's gun laws. We have among the strictest in the country, and experts say they're working. Per capita, we have significantly fewer deaths by firearms than the rest of the state's. But our laws didn't prevent the mass shootings in Half Moon Bay or Monterey Park, and we're hearing why and what more can be done and also some of the challenges that California faces in enforcing these laws. You, our listeners, are weighing in with your thoughts about how effective our laws are, questions that you have about them or how we enforce them. And also, if you want to know about how gun laws in neighboring states affect California, you can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. Call us at 866-733-6786. Beth in Calaveras County writes, Am I wrong in thinking that until we citizens demand that the federal government deal with issues— like income inequality, safe, clean housing for the poor, addiction issues, medical mental health concerns, and enact federal red flag laws, federal red flag laws, and a federal law that makes it illegal to buy a firearm in another state or at gun shows where no background check is required, that firearm deaths will continue. This reminds me a little bit about what you were saying in terms of a public health approach to dealing with firearm violence, Dr. Wintemute. But I'm wondering also if you have any thoughts on what Beth is saying.
4: Um, I agree with every one of the recommendations, if I track them all, that that Beth is suggesting. But here's where I would differ. Um, And and I put 40 years of experience um, into this. Um, Time after time after time, we've had tragedies and said to ourselves, is this the time when Congress will do something, when the state legislature will do something, Um, I've come to understand that that's probably the wrong question. It certainly is at the moment, given the makeup of Congress. The question that really interests me is to your your listeners, to everybody I talk to, is this the time when you will do something? Because if we all expect somebody else to do something, nobody will do anything. And that's grounds for despair. Mm -hmm. So let's take GVROs. Um, the laws on the books in California, it's grossly underused. What would make a difference would be if every one of your listeners right now would make a quiet personal commitment and then make it public that if they hear something, they will say something. That if someone is despondent and considering suicide, if somebody is angry at being fired and threatening harm to their former coworkers that the person who hears that information will do something about it, will go to law enforcement or or somebody else who's in a position to do something about the threat. And I say that because, to give one example, two-thirds, nearly, of people who commit public mass shootings advertise their intent in advance. They tell friends or colleagues, they post trash on the internet. We all have that information. And that gives us both the opportunity and the obligation to do something with it. Hmm.
3: Well, let me ask listeners also as a question, if you've ever sought or thought about seeking a gun violence restraining order, and what your experience was. Again, we're talking with Dr. Wintermute, Garen Wintermute, Director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis. I want to bring into the conversation now Steve Lindley. He's a program manager with the Brady Campaign, and he's also former chief of the Bureau of Firearms for California's Department of Justice. Steve Lindley, thanks so much for being with us.
7: You're welcome. Good morning.
3: So we've been hearing about the range of gun control laws that we've got on the books in California and about the lack of rules in neighboring states, and I know that you have direct experience with how that plays out as you supervise the Bureau of Firearms agents who were stationed at gun shows in Nevada or Arizona to watch for people trying to bring assault rifles back to California. Can you tell me about this, what the experiences were?
7: Well, we've had a flood of firearms coming in from outside of California because of the relatively um, lax gun laws that they have in Nevada and Arizona. So when I was at the Department of Justice, we received a number of complaints from law enforcement agencies in the Bay Area saying that doing their due diligence in their investigations, they're finding out that more and more firearms are, are coming from specifically uh, Northern California from Nevada. And it's something that the local agencies uh, are hard pressed to resolve because of the jurisdiction, so they contacted both the ATF uh, and the Department of Justice and ask, hey, what can we do? So one of the things that the Department of Justice has done in the past is keep an eye on gun shows, specifically the Nevada gun shows, and look at what was happening. Just like Karen Winton said, once we started looking at that, we started seeing that predominant number of the vehicles in the parking lot are California-plated cars, and so, you know, it's it doesn't take a genius to figure out that we have California residents uh, going to Nevada, purchasing all sorts of firearms, uh, oftentimes illegal firearms here in California, and bringing them back. And that was adding to the problems with firearms in the Bay Area.
3: So what would your agents do? Would they sort of follow these people? And then who, how would they determine who uh, to, to really monitor or track?
8: Um, you know,
7: uh, I'm about to give away the secrets of how the agents would <laughs> w- would identify people, because they, they, they still do that uh, today to one extent or another. Um, but they're looking for individuals oftentimes that go into the venue from a uh, vehicle with a California plate, and they're purchasing multiple firearms, oftentimes with the same uh, make and model So. You know, let's say in, in in that case, assault weapons were a, a large issue. So you would see a California, what we suspect to be a California resident, uh, going to the to the gun show and buy five AR-15s, hmm. go back to the car, and then and they drive westbound. So um, buying the same type of firearm is obviously an indicator of firearm trafficking. So you know some of the uh, check marks start uh, going off and the agents would then follow those individuals into California and to pull them over because just the possession of that firearm in California is illegal on top of whatever other type of criminal activity they were engaged in.
3: And so then would the agents stop them immediately at the border as soon as they cross state lines?
7: Not always. Um, so how different Counties prosecute cases uh, is is far different. So, uh, oftentimes, they weren't stopped in Nevada County. Um, Nevada County looks at prosecution of firearm issues differently than than others. Uh, states or other counties do and again this is all time sensitive you know a a snapshot in time between what may have happened in 2008 compared to 2018 and compared to today Um, and even in Placer County um, cases weren't always um, taken on by the DA's office or they would get far lesser uh, sentences for the activity they were doing. So it wouldn't be uh, unheard of for the agents to wait to the person uh, drove into Sacramento County, which has some uh, violent uh, uh, crime issues. And they would look at um, the trafficking of assault weapons far differently in Sacramento County than they would in, in Nevada County. Mm. Or if the person was from the, from the Bay Area, and that also would help the investigation. Stopping somebody in Alameda County or Contra Costa County, uh, prostitutions uh, would be far different.
3: I see. Uh, well, am I right, Garen, in concluding from what Steve is describing that counties that are more pro, say, unfettered gun access within California
4: are are loath to enforce the state laws or prosecute gun cases, I guess I should say. So I Mina, mean, I wouldn't go that far. I, okay. I don't think you should generalize beyond individual counties and individual people. I law enforcement as a as an institution is made up of individuals who who bring their own priorities. We've seen that in prosecutors, we've seen it in judges. Um, so I, I think you should we should restrict our judgment to the specific conditions that Steve is describing. Hmm.
3: Well, I'd love to get a little more insight into how these cases are prosecuted and how a prosecutor determines whether to pursue a gun case. And for that, I'd like to bring in Alana Matthews, Assistant District Attorney for Contra Costa County. Alana, thanks so much for being with us as well.
9: Thank you, Mina, for having me. Can
3: you walk us through your process, your individual process, as Karen reminds us, this is often an individual thing in many ways, in determining whether to prosecute a gun case?
2: Well, there are a myriad of gun um, crimes or gun-related crimes that can be prosecuted in a district attorney's office. So they range from misdemeanors and, and felonies. It could be brandishing. It could be illegal possession, illegal carrying um, transportation. Um, and then there's the use of it, whether, you know, it's, it's used in the commission of a crime, it's, um, fired or whether or not someone is injured, you know, where you may possess. And so the challenges with a gun case really is reflective of the challenges of any case. And that's the strength of the evidence Um, that we have surrounding those circumstances. So for instance, if there is someone who is a prohibited person from possessing a gun and it's found in their waistband, that's a pretty uh, strong evidentiary case. Whereas if it's in a vehicle um, with several individuals and it could be within the control of of a number of those individuals, it, it may be more difficult. Um, and of course, you know, there is other evidentiary processes, whether or not uh, there might be, um, you know, uh, DNA, um, whether or not it's, it's usually pretty hard to get fingerprints. But looking at the types of evidence that will contribute to the strength of the case or not, um, those are all factors that are taken into account when a uh, DA's office is looking at prosecuting a gun case.
3: Yes, and and the amount of time and resources that these cases will require as well, is that part of the calculation?
2: Well, I think it's a part of the calculation in the sense of we want to prioritize safety. And so I think that um I mean there's never going to be I think a cost analysis when we know we have a great a greater risk of of safety being threatened.
3: Yeah. I understand you've been rethinking the DA's traditional role in gun violence cases around actually what can be done around prevention. Can you can you talk about that?
2: Absolutely. Here in Contra Costa, our DA Diana Beckton, has made violence, particularly gun violence, a priority, and we realize that you know the evidence shows us that it's the answer doesn't lie only in incarceration, the, the answer doesn't lie only in legislation, um, but we really have to rethink and relook at how we reimagine safety for communities, and that includes prevention and intervention. So looking at individuals, of obviously those who are not supposed to be possessing a gun, making sure they don't, but other ways where we can uh, build deeper collaborations with the community or have coordinated efforts, whether it's with um, our courts and law enforcement to enforce those gun violence restraining orders, or taking a moment and reviewing cases if it involves domestic violence and there is gonna be a restraining order to make sure that we're enforcing the prohibition of having firearms. But as Dr. Winnemuth also said, we have to have this not only be housed in the in law enforcement or DA's office, but we need everyone to be a part of this collaborative effort. So, um, because we see it's not just limited to where crime may happen. We may see it um, in the family courts, we can see it in workplace uh, situations. So we really need community members, uh, you know, teachers, students, um, aunts, uncles, parents, cousins, friends, co-workers to be alert and to be informed and aware of what they can do when they know that there's someone who has a firearm who is at risk of bringing gun violence. That's the only way we'll be able to um, have prevention and interruption of this type of violence.
3: Hmm. Assistant DA Matthews, before I let you go, the challenges with dealing with gun violence are always evolving. I'm just curious what concerns you most um, or what you are looking at along that line in Contra Costa County?
2: Yeah, we are, as again, as I said, our DA, Diana Beckton, has really made this a priority. And so we are looking to um, build out a more robust program. So when we're looking at gun violence restraining orders, we can have increased enforcement and looking um, to build a partnership with both our courts and our law enforcement, and then also building deeper ties in the community so that we're looking at violence, uh, interruption and disruption. Uh, Contrary to most beliefs, people may think that, you know, there's a lot of people who are causing violence, but studies have shown it's, it's, really um, a smaller amount of individuals, and we are looking at ways to be supportive of efforts to target um, those at risk and not only reacting to violence, right, once once harm has already been caused, but seeing how we can support these underlying drivers of violence to prevent people from picking up a gun in the first place.
3: Alana Matthews, Assistant District Attorney at Contra Costa County, thanks so much for being with us. Let me go to caller Kirsten in San Mateo now. Hi, Kirsten, you're on.
9: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I I wanted to just express my absolute heartbreak at the number of mass shootings that have occurred, and um, certainly those in our region, but but those all over the country. And um, as a gun owner myself, and uh, my husband is a gun owner as well, we've both um, had extensive training in firearm safety and firearm handling. Um, We, you know, are law-abiding gun owners and um, take safety very, very seriously. And I, you know, I wanted to um, comment. A couple of your speakers have mentioned the red flag laws. And I think, you know, those are really crucial. And even in my own family, um, there was a family member a number of years ago who um, was exhibiting some mental health issues. And, um, you know, this is before red flag laws were really a thing. But um, within the family, you know, we removed the firearm from his uh, from his home and, um, you know, he got the treatment that he needed and he's, um, you know, back to good health now. But. Uh, doesn't have the firearm, but he's, you know, he's doing much better. But I'm wondering if your speakers could comment on some of the issues around um, enforcing the current laws that are in place. And I think um, the most recent speaker did touch on this, but, um, you know, I have a concern as a as a law-abiding citizen who takes safety very seriously, that there are a number of laws on the books currently that um, don't seem to be enforced in an effective way. And maybe that's the first place to start rather than enacting additional laws. Yeah. Thank you
3: so much. Thank you, Kristen. And thank you for sharing that very powerful story. Karen mute, I don't know if, if there are ones that you would say we don't do a great job of enforcing um, that would really relate to what Kristen's bringing up here.
4: Sure. Um, first, Mina, um, from me too, Kristen, thanks very much for for taking so seriously the responsibilities of firearm ownership. Um, some of our laws can be enforced with a lot without a lot of labor um, and that makes enforcement sustainable. GVROs are very labor intensive. Um, and perhaps after the break we could talk about that. But we've learned a lot about how to make uh, GVROs much more successful in California. Yeah, let's talk about that after the break. And again, Garen Wintemutis with UC
3: Davis School of Medicine, Director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis. More about gun violence in California, but also our laws and and how to address gun violence, given our laws. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're learning about the obstacles California agencies face as they try to enforce the state's gun laws and contend with rules in neighboring states. We're learning about our existing gun laws, which are among the strictest in the country and what our challenges are with regard to enforcement. Garen Wintemute is with us, director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis, and you, our listeners, telling us what you want to know about California's gun laws and how we enforce them, telling us if you're gun owners and whether you support the regulations. And also curious if you've sought out or thought about seeking out a gun violence restraining order and what your experience has been and any other reflections you want to share at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or by finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. Sean writes, I am a gun owner and I would love for California to impose stricter gun laws, not just limiting the types of guns people here can own, but let's be honest, it should really dictate who can own a gun and under what circumstances that person can own a gun. Steve Lindley, um, program manager at the Brady Campaign, I know you're with us and need to leave. I just want to ask you one question before I let you go, which is, with regard to the question we had before the break around enforcement, what California, if there's one thing that California could do to make the agencies work that they were trying to do in neighboring states easier or enforce a law better uh, to make your job easier, what would you say that is?
7: I think that, excuse me, I think that really, really comes from at the federal level. Um, mm. Individual states have their individual laws, but in order to have that um, continuity from one state to another. We do need action from Congress on some of these, um, you know, some, some basic things we can look at. is just universal background checks that we have here in California that uh, Garen talked about earlier. Uh, that is a big deal. And that's really kind of one of those common sense uh, issues. Yes. Uh, and, and, and then second, uh, we, we need to reinstall our assault, some sort of assault weapon ban uh, across our nation, um, we've seen that those have been effective in the states that have them. Yet, you know, if you can easily take a firearm from one state to, to another uh, and traffic it, it makes it far difficult for individual states uh, to see the safety benefits uh, of those vans.
3: Well, Steve, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your work. I know you held that position at the Bureau of Firearms at the state DOJ for. For what, nine years? And so I um, appreciate that very much and appreciate you coming on to share your insights and experiences. Uh, thank you for the offer. I appreciate the time. Steve Lindley, Program Manager at the Brady Campaign. Let me go to a caller, Steve, in San Francisco. Hi, Steve. You're on.
8: Hey, thanks for taking me. Um, hope all is well. Um, yeah, I'm sorry to hear about the uh, the shootings down in Half Moon Bay as well. hate to hear anything happen to the farm workers. I know they work hard. Yes. Um, I'm a hunter and fisherman um, from the East Coast. I'm out here, and um, I find most of these gun laws kind of, um, you know, I, I, don't, I, I, think, I don't know. I think they're kind of more window washing than effective, but your numbers show something different. So, I mean, that's that. But um, I, I guess my question is um, I haven't heard anybody talk about licensing owners of firearms in, in, in a long time, mm. uh, like you would if you had a car. Like, if you, when you get a driver's license for a car, you, you, you can drive a car. You, then, you, then you need another designation for motorcycle, another one for limo, another one for, um, for um, you know, a, a larger truck. I was curious, you know, you don't hear about that for guns, um, where you can kind of, you know, you know, your basic license allows you to own a shotgun and a hunting rifle and maybe a revolver, and then you need something else for a semi-automatic pistol, another one for semi-automatic uh, rifle, and, and so on. Um, is there a constitutional issue or a legal issue that would impede that. Um, I, I guess that's my my, my question.
6: Yeah.
8: Um, and then, but one other comment too. Um. I, I got to. I know a lot of gun owners. I don't know anybody going to Nevada gun shows to buy illegal guns. And from the East Coast, I've never heard of the Iron Highway. So, but but your your, your speaker seems to have a little more knowledge about this. But personally, I don't know anybody that does that. But that's my question about the licensing. So I'm curious yeah. about that.
3: Steve, it's a good question. Garen went to meet. I know California has a registration process, but we don't have a uh, licensing or at least a require a requirement for a license. Would that be more effective,
4: as Steve is suggesting, in terms of preventing gun right. violence? Um we, we actually don't have registration either. Um what we have here is a requirement to pass a background check at the time of purchase. Um registration like we have for cars would mean every so often, every year, every two years, you have to retell somebody, yep, I still got that gun. Uh, and we we don't do that in mm-hmm. California, um, except for some very, very small category of weapons. But the licensing that Steve is talking about um, does get talked about, and some states have it on the books. Um, the the um, term that's used is permitting, where um, beyond passing a background check, um, you have to typically from a law enforcement agency get a permit to make the purchase. And that can be per transaction or a a permit that's good for a specified period of time. Um, Illinois does the latter, North Carolina does the former. Um, And that's a strategy that has passed the very strict, robust scientific evidence tests set up by the Rand Corporation as something that would make a difference. And there is a continuing conversation in California about setting up a permitting process. It would be very expensive. It would be very labor intensive. Mm. And there would be no point embarking on it without a commitment to see it through for the long haul.
3: Well, thanks, Steve, for raising that. Let me go to caller Liz in Napa next. Hi, Liz, you're on.
10: Hi, Um just a quick shout out to uh, fellow Aggie, Dr. Wintamute. Um, <laughs> um, we appreciate everything you do. My husband and I are both um, Davis alums and have supported your program and your research in the past. Um, so, I'm a gun violence survivor. Um, it was a workplace shooting incident that took place in March of 2018 on the campus of the Veterans Home in Yongeville. Um, and, um, you know, the, the person who carried out um, the shootings was a former resident of the program. And, um, you know, he was known to uh, potentially be a threat to himself. And eventually, um, you know, we would learn through the investigation that he had actually threatened harm of others. Um, but in 2018, I think the GVRO law had only been on the books in California for two years, and not a lot of people knew about it. Um, we certainly didn't. Um, and I know one of the other callers had talked about, you know, before GVROs in California, they removed firearms from a family member that they were concerned about. Um, but, you know, one thing about that is that the GVRO, you know, just takes it a slight step further um, where someone cannot purchase new firearms. Um, and I know that was a huge concern um, after the fact with the, this veteran um, that, that uh, committed mm-hmm. the shooting was that it, they, the, our staff thought that his, um, the firearms he owned, and he owned several, were securely stored with a family member somewhere else. But what he ended up doing was purchasing new firearms to carry out the shooting on March 9th. Um, and so I think if more people are just aware that these laws exist, you know, guns, are here to stay for this foreseeable future. Um, yeah. There's hundreds of millions of them in circulation in the United States. Um, so education is just a really big part, um, and it's something that I volunteer um, to do in my own community and the state with Moms Demand and some other organizations. So I just want to make people aware that, you know, there's an education piece that we really need to
3: yes. on. Yes. Liz, thanks for sharing that. And I'm so sorry that you are a gun violence survivor. I'm very familiar with that incident. Um, You know, Dr. Wintermeet, we did a show about gun violence restraining orders in, in May of 2021. And the tragic irony is it was on the same day as the VTA mass shooting. The feeling then was people didn't use them as much as they could, that they didn't know about them, sort of what Liz is pointing out. Is that getting better? Is that still the case?
4: um both are true um here's very quickly a a story um and by the way Liz um thanks for your kind words and support um specifically as a result of that mass shooting Mina we were contacted by policymakers in California with the question what should we do to strengthen the law but we had actually just a couple weeks earlier published a research study that was conducted with state support, so California tax dollars at work, showing that the problem really wasn't with the structure of the law. It was that nobody knew that it existed. And when in the course of surveying people, we explained what the law was and then asked them, so do you think this is a good idea? There was overwhelming support. When we then asked, so would you yourself be willing to be a petitioner under, and then we listed some specific circumstances, um, family member despondent, coworker making threats. Um, there was overwhelming expression of willingness to be a petitioner that, in some cases, um, to Kirsten's point earlier, was higher among gun owners than among non-owners. We have on the books a great mechanism for everybody in California to get involved in targeted violence prevention. We just need to get the message out and get people using it. And as a result of the conversation with the policymakers, California now has an expansive program in development to make the public aware of GVROs and how to use them and when.
3: Well, let me go to caller Bill next in Santa Rosa. Hi, Bill. You're on.
5: Hi there. Thanks for having me on. I'm a former... Uh, anti-gun uh, believer and proponent, my family was anti-gun, um, but since the uh, since the, the just deluge of of shootings and, and just everywhere you go, you could be at the supermarket, you could be in school, you could be in traffic, um, uh, it just seemed that, uh, plus I had a gun scare for my kids in school when I first started high school, it seemed like the uh, prudent thing to do to go ahead and um, and, and buy firearms and become trained. Uh, I've since uh, got my concealed carry permit, so now I carry daily. Um, uh, sure. and, and with the, with the four to 600 million firearms in the U.S. that are legally owned, um, the, the laws that, that are made on the books, especially in California, won't do anything to prevent uh, shootings. There's, there's, the cat's out of the bag. There's way too many, there's more guns than people. So I just figured I would better um, get in line, like just uh, uh, join the club. So at least uh, I feel like I have the ability to defend myself and my family um, if if we're in the supermarket and and someone decides to be an active shooter.
3: Yeah, Bill, thank you for for sharing that. I I hear that a lot these days. Doctor Windermute Christie writes, for example. Strict gun laws make it very difficult for law-abiding citizens to purchase a firearm. But what's not being talked about is the fact that more minorities, females, trans citizens have been buying guns specifically for self-defense in this climate of hate crimes. And the fact that the police can't always show up in time to stop or prevent violence against them or their family or I guess someone want them to. These laws are harming the people who want to follow laws to own and carry guns for self-defense, I'm not sure that's exactly the same point as Bill, but I guess the point being that people are feeling like we're at a point where the only way to protect yourself is to be able to have a firearm and to safely learn how to carry and use it. What does the research tell you? What's your reaction to those sentiments?
4: This is is really tough, and it's hard to address briefly. Um, I'll hit some highlights. Um, Even under California's robust regulatory regime, law-abiding people can purchase firearms. Um, I'll offer as as proof of that, that in California and nationwide, we've been buying guns since the pandemic started at an absolutely unprecedented rate. Um, a, a surge in purchasing that began three years ago um, and is only now, it appears, um, returning sort of to to baseline. The really tough question that each of us needs to answer is does the research apply to me or does it just apply to other people? Am I somehow exempt from science? Because the, the research shows that on balance, bringing a gun into the home vastly increases the risk of homicide in the home, suicide in the home, including to members of the household who are not the gun owner. The research shows that a very small minority of public mass shootings are terminated by an armed civilian, that much more, they're much more terminated by suicide or or by law enforcement, um, or even as we saw in Monterey Park, by an unarmed civilian um, who wrested that MAC-9 away from the Monterey Park shooter. But the big question is, am I making my home safer or riskier by, by bringing a gun into it? At an aggregate population level, the science is really clear. The question people wrestling with this issue need to also address is Does the science apply to me? Garen Mintmute is the director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC
3: Davis, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. While this listener Ted writes, as a responsible firearm owner, I would advocate for legislation that would hold parents and guardians responsible if a child accesses a firearm and causes harm, background checks for private firearm sales, a licensing requirement for ownership, and a requirement to use fingerprint or DNA security devices such that only a registered owner or approved user can fire the weapon. Another listener writes, I'd like to hear your guest's opinion on the handgun registry. As a gun owner, it seems clear to me that all this does is limit choice for people interested in firearms legally and legitimately. It does nothing to keep people from getting any kind of gun that could be used in a crime. These kinds of laws create distrust among the shooting public and contribute to the knee-jerk reaction many have against legislation that might actually have a
4: positive effect on violence.
3: Your thoughts, Dr. Wittemute?
4: Sure. Uh, So, first to to Ted um, and his very first recommendation, Um, they're called CAP laws, for short, child access prevention laws. California has one, um, and they work. Um, They are, again, uh, one of the policies that the Rand Corporation, which did a really intensive, sophisticated look at gun policy, um, says uh, have um, strong evidence of effectiveness. But the effectiveness is mostly on unintentional shootings in the home, which are uncommon or shootings by children who get the guns at home and bring them to school, which for all that they're tragic and we read all about them um, are also uncommon. Um, We don't have a gun registry, we just don't. We have an archive of purchases. And I'll tell you this, that where that information becomes really useful is in tracking guns that are used in crime. Let me give you an example. I'm a cop with a gun that was used in a robbery here in Sacramento. If I file a trace request on the owner of uh, on that gun to try and figure out how it got into the hands of the robber, if I file that request with ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, they'll give me the gun's first purchaser. And that transaction might have been 10 years ago in Pennsylvania. That's as far as an ATF trace goes, cold case. Um, but if I can follow that gun through California's archive of purchases, we don't have a registry we have an archive of purchases, I can bring that gun to the most recent purchaser. And and I personally, as the person at the keyboard, have seen it happen where a gun that is a cold case based on ATF data becomes hot when suddenly I learned that that gun was purchased six months before the robbery, three miles from the crime scene. Now I've got actionable information as a law enforcement professional.
3: We just have 30 seconds. But one of the things that I've been struck by is that one thing that hasn't come up, which often does in these conversations, at least nationally, is is a lot of attention on the mental health of the mm-hmm. gunmen. you You pointed out that the relationship between gun violence and mental health is often misunderstood. Do you want to just say a quick word about that?
4: In, in less than 30 seconds. Mental could. health plays a, a relatively small role in interpersonal firearm violence, homicide, mass shooting. We really need better diagnostic and, and treatment resources for mental health. Our objective is to prevent suicide.
3: Yeah. One of the things that I was struck by is that you said that people with mental illness are much more likely to be victims than Correct. perpetrators. Garen Wintermute, teaching us a lot. Also teaches emergency medicine at the UC Davis School of Medicine and is director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis. Always appreciate hearing about your research Dr. Wintermute. Thanks
4: again for having me Nina.
3: And always appreciate the robust conversation we have with our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you Susie Britton for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim.